Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are all in this together, my friends. We are now inching distressingly close to 2 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. As of today, June 4th, we stand at more than 1.8 million cases with roughly 107,000 deaths. For the most part, We've been doing what we can to prevent the spread of this coronavirus by social distancing and keeping away from large groups until last week. Enormous gatherings have overshadowed any news of the pandemic. I'm talking about the protests against racism and police violence that started in Minneapolis and are now taking place in most major American cities, indeed, many cities around the world. Thousands and thousands of people are marching together, kneeling together, and chanting together with each other's faces right next to each other. To be clear, we've been here before. The red summer of 1919 saw a huge anti-white supremacist protest spring up across America in response to anti-black race riots even then, just as the Spanish flu pandemic had finally started to subside. The health risks of protesting are obvious. But what about the health risks of not protesting? Is the risk of contracting or spreading COVID-19 worth the potential benefits of reversing centuries of systemic racism here in America? To help us understand this delicate balance, I'm joined by public health physician, Dr. Helene Gale. She is the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust a foundation aimed at addressing racial and wealth inequity in Chicago. She has previously worked with the CDC and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation working on infectious diseases like HIV-AIDS. Welcome to Science Rules, Doctor. May I call you Helene? Please do. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. So can we just start, can you define racial and wealth inequity? How does this affect people's health? I mean, if you think about it, I guess you can tell right away, but can you spell it out for us? 
Yeah. So, you know, there's a term that we use, which is called social determinants of health. And it basically says that while we know that healthcare has an impact on, on health status, that really more of what determines an individual's health are the other factors, the social and economic factors that really influence people's lives. So if you look at, and if you take genetics out of it, because we can't do anything about genetics, but if you look at the things that you can have an impact on, about 80% of what determines health and health outcomes are the social determinants of health. More than three quarters. More than three quarters quarters. of what happens to you is just where you live. Where you live, whether or not you have have access to education, um, whether you have access to to nutritious food, um, whether you have a job, whether you have high quality of air, if you have safety in your environment, if you have access to safe housing, uh, safe transportation, etc. So all the things that make up our everyday life actually have a greater impact on health than whether or not you get access to healthcare. Now, I don't want to minimize healthcare. I'm a physician. Obviously, I believe that healthcare is very important and we need to do more to make sure that people have equal access to, to health. But I think recognizing the importance of these other factors make us um, look at health and health disparities. So right away during this week, I just can see a connection that I'm sure I thought about at some point, but didn't think about enough. If you live your life anxious, if you live your life worried that a cop is going to end your life, it's got to affect you deeply, right? Not yeah, it only does. do you not have access to like regular health care, but just your mental health. Well, yeah, it, it is. And I think there's more data these days that show that the impact and the stress that goes along with racism um, is real. And there's a concept that, that people are now starting to understand more that's called weathering. And it literally is, you know, your body, your, your whole system being weathered, if you will, by this constant stress and strain that goes along with living in a world where you're constantly activated um, in ways that are not normal. Yeah. So in geology, we talk about erosion and weathering. And so weathering is sort of the larger term. The earth's surface gets worn out. And you're saying a person living in these difficult conditions is just sort of is weathered, is worn out from all this. Exactly. And if you think about geology, what weathers quickest are the things that have more stressful and constant uh, stress, uh, whether, you know, it's geologic or, or you know, environmental, <laughs> et cetera, you wear something down. So, you know, I, th- I think all of these factors start um, giving a picture for why this issue of race and racism and all that goes with it, the wealth inequality, inequality in access to education, uh, food deserts, lack of nutritional outlets, um, public safety, all of these sorts of things that go into impacting one's health outcomes. Well, talking right now about George Floyd and all that, it's obvious that a black person just has a different relationship with the police than a guy like I have. So does that lead to distrust of all authority figures? And does that lead to distrust of physicians? I think the distrust of, of all authority um, is one part, but there's some very specific things around the mistrust with um, the health and health systems. 
the Tuskegee experiment as an example, an experiment where black men were allowed to be untreated after there was a known treatment for syphilis for a, quote, natural experiment to see what happens if you don't treat syphilis. Well, you know, that has had ramifications for decades now, that along with the kinds of treatment that has that has been consistently discriminatory for African-Americans with the health system, um, you know, those things aren't forgotten and they live on in the memory of a people when there has been clear evidence of when health was used as a weapon, if you will, against a community. And it's made a huge difference in people's willingness um, to engage with with health systems because of that longstanding mistrust. So along with that, during this COVID-19 pandemic, stay home, stay home, stay home, uh, six feet apart, wear a mask and so on. But you look at these protests, everybody's out there yelling at each or chanting or interacting. Well, you know, I will say first and foremost, as a public health um, physician, if you're going to protest, wear a mask. You can do, uh, you can participate in a, in a uh, protest safely. I was in one the other night. Um, most everybody had a mask on. We were asked to all have masks on. We were also asked to social distance. And I think you can protest and show uh, your disapproval um, and make the statement you want to st- make without putting yourself in jeopardy. You know, that said, um, you know, everybody has to take a calculated risk. And at this very, at this moment where people really do feel like their voices have not been heard and they want to give a strong message and that they are willing to take the consequences, you know, uh, I can understand that. Um, but I do believe as, as we're starting to see more and more of these protests are thinking about the fact that these protests are happening at the time of COVID and that you can protest and raise your voice and be heard, but still think about public health safety. Well, if I may editorialize, it makes even more of a statement if you're marching and protesting, spaced out or uh, physically distanced, wearing masks, than if you don't. If you crowd close together, don't wear a mask, and aren't uh, respecting this virus and respecting how this virus is going to spread. Do you think, doctor, that there's going to be a big spike in COVID infections because of all these protests? I mean, we have thousands and thousands of people in big cities very close together for hours and hours at a time. Well, you know, I, I think that there's, there is likely to be some uh, spike. Uh, this is a relatively young population. Um, we know that young people can often can also get COVID, but we also know that age and, and being uh, over 60, over 65 puts you at greater risk. Um, we, they're outdoors. We know that COVID doesn't spread as rapidly when you've got the air to help to disperse it. So, you know, uh, we're in warmer weather and to the extent that, that there may be some seasonality to this. So, you know, may reduce the risk. So, you know, I am sure that there will be some increased spread as a result of it, but I'm hoping that perhaps some of these factors will mitigate against having this be uh, a huge spike as a result of these protests. But what's your opinion? What do you think is going to happen? 
my my opinion is that I think we will see some spike. I don't. I think some of those other factors will will mitigate against it. We're also seeing a lot of these protests where people are wearing masks, um, which has been pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a controversial thing even now. But if you're wearing a mask and somebody and the the other person is wearing a mask, you almost double your chances of not getting sick. Right, right, so, right, so right. wear a mask. No, and I, there, there's a part of me that wants to scream and say, you know, get away, pull back. Uh, on the other hand, as you said, you know, um, this is a strong statement. And we know that, that race and ra- racism have killed millions of people over you know, four centuries, at least the last several yeah. se- centuries. So you know, it's a delicate balance. It's a difficult one. Yeah, I get. I mean, if I, if you're in the crowd and the guy's got the bullhorn, he's getting everybody revved up. Say his name. And you go, excuse <laughs> me, sir. Can you put your please put your mask up? It's just not. It's just the wrong time for that. So what we want is everybody to wear a mask just routinely when we're in public. Right. Do you think that's going to change? I wonder about this all the time. Do you think? There will be a tradition or a custom in the U.S., especially in the future, say five years from now, that when you're sick, you'll wear a mask. Do you think that'll happen? You know, I think that we are going to change as a result of this. I hope that what it does do is to continue to extend that sense that we all have a responsibility, not only for our own health, but how do we also um, think about our families, our communities, and uh, and really adhere to things like vaccinating your children and thinking about what are safe behaviors when you're when you're sick. And I think, you know, um, in some ways, the covid epidemic itself unmasked many of the issues of health and health inequity and economic inequity as we recognized that black and brown communities were disproportionately impacted by covid. Can you spell that out? Can you can you give us a list of the sorts of things that COVID-19 has made uh, has made this connection between at-risk communities or minority communities, COVID-19 and society writ large? Sure. Well, you know, I think it, it's both had an impact on um, acquiring the infection as well as what happens if you get infected. And in, in the, um, so, if you are in, um, working in a nursing home or other care facilities where you're more likely to be in um, in contact with somebody with COVID, and so the very jobs, often low low wage jobs that uh, are disproportionately held by people of color, have put them on the front lines of contracting this virus. Um, we also know that if you have pre-existing health conditions, and this is what we're seeing a lot in the African-American population, that the death rate is higher. And so um, if you have heart disease, uh, diabetes, obesity, um, other lung diseases, you're more likely to have serious consequences. So we've seen both the the incidence or the, the rate of infection increased among particularly Black and Latino populations, and we've seen this stark contrast and increased death rates, particularly among African Americans. So it's this thing where you don't have access to good food, so then you're more likely to develop diabetes or weight issues. Exactly. Um, And the fact that you don't have the option 
uh, or or the the option is a bad option. It's the option of not being able to uh, put food on the table, pay your bills. Um, if you say I don't want to go to my job that might put me at risk for COVID, so you know people are making tough, tough choices between the infection um, and basic you know human needs. And so I think those are the issues that are probably front and center, along with the fact that, you know, as you said, some of the reasons why people have the health conditions that put them at risk are because of these same economic uh, and social factors. It's uh, self-sustaining. It's uh, the vicious cycle. Exactly. Which is why I think, we, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we can get very complicated about this or we can say, let's look at how we have greater equity in our society and how do we move in the direction of really taking the kinds of actions that can make the lives of people, particularly people who have lived with uh, racism, discrimination and inequity, how do we change that? Because it's going to have an impact not only on those factors, but also on health. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully we leave here with a real commitment to making a difference and making this truly a more equitable, non-racist society. We'll be back right after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. So one of my favorite questions for anybody about anything uh-huh. is if you were queen of the forest, you're in charge now. You could make uh, a sweeping change or a set of sweeping changes or not of be sweeping, any sort of change. <laughs> what would you recommend? What would you tell us to do? I would say um, on the health side, uh, we really do need to have a real health system that allows equal access, um, that is accessible, and that is culturally competent and really meets the needs of all populations. 
Um, on the economic side, I think we need to really look at how do we make sure that people have access to um, a living wage? How do we make sure that uh, children have access to high quality education? Um, how do we make sure that um, small businesses have access to the kinds of uh, capital that allows them to grow their businesses and grow economic vitality in neighborhoods that where there has been huge disinvestment? Um, how do we protect workers? You know, through the CARES Act, we have put in place historic uh, worker protection. Why can't we extend some of those things past this pandemic? Um, we put in place small business loans. Why can't we do that um, on a, all the time? A, all yeah. the time, you know, we put cash in people's hands. You know, for the longest time, we've said you can't give people money; um, they won't know what to do with it. We're seeing that people do know what to do, and that cash actually helps uh, provide some of the financial security that allows people to then go on and get the kind of high quality work that allows them to, to grow assets and build wealth. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we've done during this pandemic um, that we could actually look at as social experiments that we could continue on longer term. So what does your organization do specifically? Well, we, we're, we're a, a community foundation and our, our overarching uh, mission, and we've been, we've been in place 105 years, is to really stand with this community to really tackle its toughest problems and to be... Uh, this is the uh, Chicago Community Trust. Right. And so we have a base of generous donors who want to invest in their communities and that really want to find solutions to the issues that uh, most plague our city and our region. And then we work with community to find solutions for those things. We have over the last year said that uh, because of the kind of foundational role that economics plays and economic inequity plays in so many factors like health, like safety, like violence, et cetera, that we were going to uh, make as our highest priority closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap here in Chicago and in the region where we know that African-Americans and, and Latinos um, have been economically held back, if you will, um, and make up the majority of this population. So if, if, if we're going to move ahead as a region, we've got to move ahead with all people being able to move forward. So how do you do that? Well, you know, um, obviously, if there was a simple answer, it would have been done. But I think, you know, what we've tried to do is to take kind of a, a threefold approach how can we help to increase um, wealth and assets at a household level? How do we help to um, get help families um, have access to well-paying jobs so that they can start to, to build out assets, um, have access to home ownership, starting small businesses that actually can take what is income, which is a slice in time, to actually looking at how do you accumulate wealth and then looking at the issue of debt, because we know that communities um, where there's been large disinvestment also have large debt burden, whether it's predatory lending, discriminatory fines and fees, et cetera. So we really look at what are the things that can drive increasing assets at a household level? Then what can we do at a neighborhood level? Driving investment, particularly private investment, in neighborhoods where there's been underinvestment. We know that if a neighborhood isn't thriving, it's hard to have its families thrive. It's hard to have the kind of education 
uh, access that is helpful. So we're also looking at working with with the private sector, public sector to drive resources into underinvested communities. And then finally, how do you work with communities themselves to be able to raise their voice so that they can be actors in their own future um, and their stories are told and they're at the table as decisions are being made. So we wanna look at how do we work at the household level, the neighborhood level and the community level, all of that to integrate in a way that can really help to, to move things forward. On one hand, as a foundation, we make grants and we do a lot of work with, with uh, community organizations and others to make grants. But I, but I also think it's important to recognize a lot of why we are where we are is because of poor public policy. And if we don't think about how we shift policies that have held uh, communities back, I don't think that we can make the difference. So take just as an example, the denial of home ownership um, for African Americans. That has stripped and, and denied wealth accumulation. Home ownership is the thing that most middle-class Americans uh, used as a, as a leg up. They aspire, we aspire to it. Right. Everybody, to own a home is the American dream, right? Dream, and it was the way in which people started wealth accumulations. Black people in America were denied that ability through public policy and federal legislation. And so I think when we recognize what the history is of how wealth was denied and how wealth, in, in fact, was, was intentionally stripped out of um, communities of color, it means we also have to look at what are the policies that could actually help to reverse some of those, uh, those obstacles, some of those systemic barriers. So it's you've brought it up. I don't know if you're aware of how many times you use the expression of the word investment. <laughs> it sounds like so much of this is about money. Yeah. You know, if you've got assets, you're able to... A house you can borrow against. You can borrow against it. You can send your child to school. Uh, that child won't come out saddled with debt. They can then go ahead and use their education uh, to build on that wealth. And so... It's not about making people rich. It's about giving people the ability to have access to the things that allow us to, to live our dreams, to provide for our children, um, to have the basic things that allow us to have a satisfying life. And, I, and everybody deserves that. Well, not only that, it's in everybody's best interest. It's truly in everybody's best interest. When people complain about crime in certain neighborhoods, it's because people don't have opportunities and can't make a living and things just go badly now. Yeah. And if you talk to if you talk to anybody, you know, if you talk to and we work a lot with people who have been gang involved, who've been crime and uh, involved in crime. And they'll say, you know, if I had a job, I wouldn't be out here doing some of these things. Right. Yeah, of course not. I mean, if I could support my family legitimately, I wouldn't turn to things that are less legitimate, illegitimate. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel the protests are connecting this, uh, connecting these larger disparities to the death of George Floyd and death of other African-American people uh, at the hands of police? Well, I think, you know, I, I think in the, be in the very early days, there was just an out outcry and outpouring of, of anger. Um, you know, the social contract is broken. 
and it was broken before our very eyes. We believed that life should work a certain way. You know, we believed that if we follow the rules, um, certain outcomes should occur. And when that doesn't happen, you know, when you do everything right and you're still not rewarded in the same way and you see somebody else doing something, doing the same things you did, but having a very different result. One of, yeah, like I say, in the U.S., we drive on the right side of the street. Okay, right. that's what we do. You, we got to have that one rule, right. everybody. Right. And then if you get in a wreck with somebody who was not driving on the right side of the street, objectively, it is to be hoped that the person who chose to not drive on the right side of the street right. is the one who has to pay for it. Right. But if you're a black person in the U.S., you're not sure. Yeah, exactly. If you keep driving down the right side of the street and you keep you keep being the one who pays the price for the accident, you start wondering. And so I think right after uh, um, George Floyd's murder, uh, a lot of what we saw was an outpouring of outrage, pain, frustration, et cetera. Um, I think increasingly people are connecting the dots and talking about you know, some of the real issues. Obviously, the issues around police and police reform, but then more broadly, you know, the issues of racism, equity, and how a group of people have been treated in our, in, in our society for the last 400 years. So I think the dots are being connected. And I, you know, I believe that this is really um, a movement, if you will, just like the a civil rights point. movement, a turning point, an inflection point where we actually do say enough is enough. Um, we can't as a, as a society stand to watch a man's life being taken before our very eyes understand the connection to racism and go about our lives as if nothing had happened. So that's my hope. So I grew up in the city of Washington, D.C. I was a little kid during Resurrection City and Martin Luther and Malcolm X and Bobby Kennedy. All these guys got assassinated. It was just weird, creepy time. And it did lead to a few changes. It did. But I think because I'm not only hopeful, but I think objectively, because it is international, because everybody can see this on video, Right. I think we may have a shot at making some big changes. One more thing, very important. This is the coronavirus edition of this podcast. What do you say to people who are, who are fixated on the risks of spreading co coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, during these protests? Do you have any advice on how to protest safely? People should definitely wear masks and continue to social distance. Um, if somebody marching next to you is not wearing a mask, get away from them. If somebody is moving into your space, get away from them. And if you start to feel like the crowd is getting too close or getting out of control, get out of the march. You know, I think it is important to express how you're feeling at this moment. I think it is important for us to raise our voices. Um, but I hope that people will continue to think about practicing the things that we know will reduce the risk, not only for yourself from contracting it, but also for your fellow marchers in case you happen to be an asymptomatic carrier. So continue to wear your mask, continue to social distance while you exercise your First Amendment right. 
And the reason you're exercising your First Amendment rights, everybody, is so that we can, working together, dare I say it, Helene, <laughs> change the world. Yes. <laughs> no, for real. No, it's a real, this is a real opportunity for all of us. It is. But everybody it is. must be safe out there. Our guest today has been Dr. Helene Gale, a public health physician who leads the Chicago Community Trust. She previously worked on infectious diseases with the CDC and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She is an expert on the inequities in public health. So thank you again, Helene, for taking the time. Thank you. Now, if you'd like to join our conversation, and of course, I hope you do, leave us a voicemail. You remember this. You call this number and you leave a message, 201-472-0785. That's 201-472-0785. I am your host, Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic. This is worldwide. We are all in this together. And now more than ever, science rules. Now, if you like Science Rules Coronavirus Edition, of course, I hope you do. Please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps us find out who's listening, what you want to hear about. It helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer, once again, is Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer, the CCO at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, science rules. One more thing. No, wait. A few more things. Contact tracing, contact tracing, contact tracing, and... Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, and wear a mask, people. Please wear a mask when you're out in public. Thank you all very much. Let's change the world. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.